Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 23. As we did last week, I'm going to invite all of you to read uh, together. And would you stand, if you're able, and read with us? It's in the program, and for those of you at home, it'll appear on the screen as well. Let's read the entirety of Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm 23 is probably the most famous psalm in the Bible, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. I guess you could make a case for John 3.16 as well. In fact, it's so famous and well-known, and we all learned it. Many of you probably learned it as uh, in the King James, that it was even a little jarring to hear slightly different words as we read this morning. But it seems like everybody, even people who've never set foot in a church, know at least the first line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. During Lent, as we prepare our hearts for Easter, We've been looking at the Psalms. The Psalms are a series of songs which express the deepest longings and feelings and needs of our souls. They give us language to share with God what we otherwise probably couldn't share on our own. And so last week we looked at the first half of Psalm 23. This week we're going to look at the second. In the first half, David uses this one image, and this is the one that comes to mind, a shepherd and his sheep. And we really soaked in, what does that mean, that God is our shepherd and we are the sheep? Let me give you just a quick recap to catch you up. The main, probably the main idea of Psalm 23 is um, right in the middle. Very often in Hebrew poetry, uh, whatever comes in the middle is the main point. What comes in the middle of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the valley of suffocating despair, I will not fear For you are with me. For you are with me. For thou art with me. We saw the reasons that the shepherd being with his sheep mean the sheep don't have to fear. The shepherd provides for his sheep. The shepherd protects his sheep. We saw that sheep are lost without a shepherd. In fact, without a shepherd, sheep die. That's just, they just do. We saw that just because we find ourselves in the darkest valley, in that valley of suffocating despair, doesn't necessarily mean we're on the wrong road. In ancient cultures, especially in ancient Israel, it was actually pretty unusual to find that green pasture that we hear about in verse 1. Very unusual. And if you found one and eventually the sheep ate all the grass and you had to find another, the only way to get from one to the other was through these, this system of dried up ravines the valley of the shadow of death. So we saw that just because you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death doesn't mean that God has left you. In fact, sometimes God is leading you through the valley of the shadow of death to get to the next pasture. We also saw that it is possible because sheep tend to wander on their own to find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death alone. 
And a sheep that's not following its shepherd and finds itself there has good reason to fear. The whole point is this. Follow the good shepherd because he provides for us. He protects us. Now in verse 5, David switches images. It can seem kind of jarring. We go from a sheep and, and their shepherd to a host of a dinner party and his friends. That's the image we're really going to play with a little bit this morning. Last week we saw that the shepherd provides for his sheep and protects his sheep. This week we're going to see that God prizes us. He provides for us. He protects us. This morning he prizes you. He prizes you. In other words, it's not just about what he can offer you. Our relationship with God is not just about the things he gives you. It's not just a a utilitarian relationship. No, there is deep desire and longing that he desires and longs for you. That's where we're going this morning. Here's our structure. We're going to see that God prizes us in three ways. We'll see it in what he offers us, a feast. We'll see it in how he offers it, that it's a lavish feast. And lastly, we'll see where he offers it in his home. What he offers, how he offers it, where he offers it. That's where we're going this morning. We start with what it is, a feast. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The table is just, uh, it's just a word that represents the feast. It's a curious image. Think about it for just a minute. When you think of a feast, what do you think of? You think of a celebration. You think of laughter. You think of lots of food and lots of drink. You think of freedom. You think of joy. You don't think of enemies, do you? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's jarring because a feast, by definition, is a place where you do not fear. And enemies, on the other hand, are something we naturally fear. A feast in itself is a proud declaration that I am not afraid. Jamie and I have a a friend who wrote an essay kind of about this about, I don't know, five or seven years ago, and it's, it's brilliant. The title of the essay is this, Feasting, an act of war. Feasting, an act of war. The thought occurred to her while she was reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And what I, instead of trying to summarize what she says, I figured it's probably better. Um, can I just, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not asking permission because I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to read, let me rephrase. I'm going to read you a phrase from, or a, uh, a section from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then uh, two short paragraphs that our friend Kelly wrote about it. And I want you to listen uh, with one ear listening to C.S. Lewis and the other ear listening to Psalm 23. This is about halfway through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, Just for context, if you know the story, Edmund has been kind of um, duped Uh, He's been hoodwinked, and now he's a a prisoner, basically, of the witch queen. They're on a sleigh, and they're traveling through the woods of Narnia. It says, they they went on and on. This is Edmund and the witch. They went on and on with no sound but the everlasting swish of the snow and the creaking of the reindeer harness. And then, at last, the witch said, what have we here? Stop! And they did. How Edmund hoped she was going to say something about breakfast (laughs) But she had stopped for quite a different reason. A little way off, at the foot of a tree, sat a merry party, a squirrel, and his wife with their children, and two satyrs and a dwarf and an old dog fox, all on stools around a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely. 
and there seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't all that sure that he didn't see something like a plum pudding. At the moment when the sledge stopped, the fox, who was obviously the oldest person present, had just risen to its feet holding a glass in its right paw as if it were going to say something. But when the whole party saw the sledge stopping and who was in it, all the gaiety went out of their faces. The father squirrel stopped eating with his fork halfway to his mouth, and one of the satyrs stopped with its fork actually in its mouth, and the baby squirrels squeaked with terror. What is the meaning of this? asked the witch queen. Nobody answered. Speak, vermin, she said again, or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, said the fox. We were given them. And if I, may make so, if I might make so bold as to drink to your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you? Said the witch. Father Christmas, stammered the fox. What? Roared the witch springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? But no. Say you have been lying, and you shall even now be forgiven. At that moment, one of the young squirrels lost its head completely. He has, he has, he has, it squeaked, beating its little spoon on the table. Edmund saw the witch bite her lips so that a drop of blood appeared on her white cheek. Then she raised her wand. Oh, don't, don't, please don't, shouted Edmund. But even while he was shouting, she had waved her wand, and instantly where the merry party had been, there were only statues of creatures, one with its stone fork fixed forever halfway to its stone mouth, seated round a stone table on which there were stone plates and a stone plum pudding. That's good writing, isn't it? <laughs> Here's what our friend, Jamie's and my friend Kelly writes about that passage. She says, the animal's Christmas feast is an act of war to the white witch because it tells the truth about her authority. The witch views it as an act of treason. She is threatened by the celebration. The thaw is underway. Father Christmas is in the wood, and the witch's reign is drawing to a close. And she continues, she writes, The animal's feast bellows out hope, joy, and the truth that Aslan is on the move. Who knew that some plum pudding and holly could be so offensive? <laughs> you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's offensive to the enemy. And yet he prepares the table for us as though it is our only right response to take our seat. It is offensive to the enemy because it is so lavish. When you take time, when you're throwing a feast, when you're throwing a dinner party, and you take time to set an elaborate table, and you cook a gourmet meal, and then you linger you don't just eat, you know, in 20 minutes and then you're done. No, you sit and linger and enjoy and savor the food. And even more importantly, you savor the company and you savor the laughter. You push your chair back and you just sit. No rush to get up from the table. 
What are you doing? And all those things, what are you saying? You are declaring, I have nothing to fear. This, by the way, is why an Easter feast, like a literal big Easter lunch or supper, however you and your family do it, is so appropriate. And why it hurts that it's been taken from us last year and for many of us probably this year and why it will be so good, Lord willing, next year or maybe in a limited way this year to re-engage with that practice. Why? Not only because it's a feast, but let's look at how God does it because it's lavish. Look at how lavish, if you have your program or Psalm, your Bible in front of you, look at how lavish it is. He just tells us. It's the next three lines of the psalm. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Let's look at those three uh, briefly. First, he says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, literally, to anoint somebody is to pour, especially in ancient cultures, it was to pour oil over their head, pretty over the top, especially because in ancient cultures, more so than today, but somewhat today, oil was very, very expensive. It was not a commodity. It was not something you compared prices. No, it was, it was a luxury good. It was a tremendous honor to pour oil, oil over somebody's head, to anoint them. In fact, in the Old Testament, you basically only see prophets, priests, and kings being anointed. Mark tells us in, in Mark 14, there's one story. Do you remember this? A woman, uh, Mark doesn't even give her a name, but a woman comes and anoints Jesus. In this case, she uses perfume. She pours a bottle of perfume over Jesus' head, and Mark tells us this detail. He said the bottle of perfume was so expensive it would have cost a year's wages. It's an incredible honor. It's such an honor that Jesus' followers get upset. They say, that's a waste. Why would you use something so... We could have sold that and, and helped the poor. And always almost always, like in Mark 14, you anointed somebody who was higher up on the social ladder than you. You anointed your prophet, your priest, your king. But here, look at what's going on in Psalm 23. It's God anointing his guest. Think for just a moment about this fact, that God wants to honor you. Can you stand that thought? I mean, really, sit with it. Can you stand the thought that in Isaiah 43, 4, God says you are precious and honored in his sight? Which means all he requires of you, what does somebody do when they're being anointed? They just sit there. Like nothing. They sit and receive. God wants to honor you, and all he needs you to do in order to honor you, all he calls you to do is to sit and receive. Can you? Can you sit still? It's pure grace. My bet is that some of you literally cannot stand the thought that God wants to honor you without you first having earned it. Can you deal with that? Can you, can you just sit and receive the grace of God? That's the scandal of grace, that God would give you something you didn't earn. <laughs> you anoint my head with oil, David says. 
My cup overflows. Or in the good King James, my cup runneth over. It's a similar idea, different image, getting kind of the same point across. Now the cup, remember, it's a, um, it's a feast. It's an Old Testament feast. So it's not a cup of water. It's probably a cup of wine. Uh, we're Baptists, so for us it was a cup of grape juice. But um, it's a, it's, it's, remember, again, it's not water. It's a luxury good. It's wine. It's very expensive. And it's the difference, but it's not only the difference between a necessity and a luxury, it's the difference between giving you a glass of water and making sure your cup is never empty, making sure your cup is always full. I thought for a long time about how to explain this. I don't know how to explain this any better, but maybe we can just show it. Here's your cup. This is you. Here's the wine, water. I'm not Jesus, so I can't turn it into wine, but, you know, carpets and whatnot. And what, is, what does God do? He just, he takes and he, he fills you and he gives 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 and he gives. You getting the point? And it never stops. I didn't think of what to do with this class now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, can I, is this, is this, there, <laughs> I'll just set this here, I guess. A little extra forethought would have helped. <laughs> That's what God does. He just blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses. It never stops. How? And remember, like I used water. It's, it's free from the tap. Imagine if I had actually done that with wine. How wasteful, you would have thought. And what about the carpet, you may have thought. But really, how wasteful, you would have thought. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. You're used to hearing surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, but the Hebrew word that David uses there is the exact same Hebrew word as in Exodus. Remember in Exodus, the Israelites are escaping from uh, Egypt and then Pharaoh changes his mind. First he lets them go. They leave. He has second thoughts about it. He says, wait a minute. And he sends 600 chariots in his whole army. And it says they pursued the Israelites. Exact same word. God's love and mercy pursue you. They chase you. They, it's almost like he's saying they hunt you down. Just uh, yesterday morning, I was up. I was up early. Eventually, uh, Elliot woke up, and I heard her calling from her room. And my flesh, I'm not... My gut reaction, this is probably not good parenting, but just in my mind, and I didn't say this, but my mind was, well, you're up and I'm up, so why don't you come out to me? As, as if I were like too busy or <laughs> too important to go into my daughter's bedroom and be with her as she woke up. As if I were somehow a better parent for making her like work for my attention. That's rubbish. 
That's the opposite of what God is saying. He pursues, he chases, he he doesn't make us work. He doesn't even make us come out of the bedroom for his grace. He goes right in to find us at the feeblest call, Daddy, and he's right there. He finds you, he seeks you. Do you see, you see what David is doing here? I mean, David's working hard to try to find language that describes that God doesn't just give you some basic necessities. He doesn't just give you like a piece of hard tack and a cup of old water. His love for you is so over the top. He doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. He's not a utilitarian God who gives you a couple of your needs and then says, get on with your life and I hope you're able to figure it out. He's the host of a wedding feast who invites all the poor and powerless, all the lost and lonely, and instead of sending them through a buffet line for a, you know, just a pat of sloppy Joe sandwich or something like that, he sits them down and serves them a five-course meal with, with real silver and like four forks. And like, what are all those forks for anyway? And he just, it's so over the top. Why? Because he not only provides for you, he not only protects you, he prizes you. He prizes. You are his prize. Do you believe that? When you start to believe that, that will change you to your bones. We talked a couple weeks ago about the difference between kind of how the scriptures portray God and a lot of times our traditional religious understanding. The traditional religious understanding of God says, I need to do a certain amount of things and then God will come my way. I come his way and then he comes my way. But that's not the picture the Bible paints at all. And David right here in Psalm 23 says, God has already come my way, all the way, all the way. What do you have to do? Just take a seat at the table. (laughs) Just sit down. He throws a feast. How does he do it? Lavishly, finally, briefly. Where does he do it? In his own home, the house of the Lord. I will dwell in where? The house of the Lord forever. I wrote like another, whole other sermon about this. I'm not gonna, maybe some other time. Um, What is it? What does it take for you to invite somebody into your home for a meal? Like, who, who would think about this? Like, maybe even in your mind, think of a name, the types of people you would invite. Who would you invite into your home for a meal? What type of person? How long do you have to know somebody before you'll invite them into your home for a meal? Do they need to show certain personality traits, certain character traits? Do you have to, do they have to be, they have to be a certain political party. <laughs> See, when you invite someone over for dinner, it's not a really casual thing. It implies a relationship. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you already have a deep relationship, but it means you at least want a deep relationship and you want, you want things to progress in your relationship with them. Think of it negatively, if, that's, if this is helpful. If there's somebody that you usually try to avoid, there's somebody who annoys you, odds are you're not going to have them over for dinner, right? That's not your first instinct. 
Every scholar points out that ancient cultures, people had similar mindsets. A meal was deeply significant, especially in your own home. Here's what one of them writes. He says, in the Old Testament world, to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty and could be the culminating token of a covenant. A covenant. Now this Thursday, we're going to sit at the Lord's table as we observe the Lord's Supper during our Maundy Thursday service. It's a table that our Lord invites us to a feast. Now the elements seem really simple, right? Just bread and wine, grape juice. But we all know, we know, they're more than bread and wine. What did Jesus say? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. It's a covenant. It's the ratification of a covenant. I've got time. In ancient cultures, um, when you made a, a covenant, it's kind of like a treaty or a contract. In ancient cultures, uh, the king promised to give the subjects something, and then they promised to give the king something in return. But if you look at Genesis 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, it says Abraham, or Abram at the time, uh, was laid out, and it says something like a deep and terrible darkness fell upon him. God made the covenant with Abraham, and Abraham was literally like passed out on the side. And in Jesus Christ, God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. He fulfilled the covenant on the cross as we had nothing to offer, and he did it all. It is lavish, it is a feast, it is over the top. And on Thursday, we will feast in some ways, ironically, in the presence of our enemies. Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday are the three bleakest days in the Christian calendar. But if you know your history, you know what happens on the third day. You know what comes on Sunday. There's a great preacher, S.M. Lockridge, and, and um, he said, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. If you get a chance, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Look up S.M. Lockridge on YouTube. Because you see the very same elements that on Good Friday, the bread and the wine, Jesus' very body and blood, those same elements that on Good Friday symbolize death, on the third day come to symbolize life. So we feast. Why? As an act of war. Maybe, maybe more accurately, it's not an act of war, but as a statement of victory. We're not the ones fighting the war. The war has been fought. It has been won. Jesus Christ, in his death, crushed the power of sin and death. Death is dead through Jesus Christ. And as Jesus was raised to new life, it means that we who believe in him are raised with him to new life. It's Palm Sunday. We're not even to Easter, and I'm getting, to, I'm getting ahead of myself. You see what's happened? Our Lord has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. 
Now remember, if, it's your, if fighting the enemy is up to you, you don't feast. If you're going to war tomorrow, you don't feast. You plan, you strategize, you worry, you make sure that your you know, sword is sharp and your armor is ready, and you're not feasting. You only feast after the war is over. But it's not up to you to fight. The shepherd has provided for you, he protects you, he prizes you. Therefore, all we have to do is sit at his table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me, shall hunt me down all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we want to dwell in your house forever. We're reminded that in 1 Corinthians 3, St. Paul says that we are God's temple. Us. Don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Paul asks us. So when we think of dwelling in the house of the Lord, it's not so much an escapist dream of getting to heaven someday, of waiting for the sweet by and by. No, the kingdom, the victory, the feast is right here, right now, as we dwell with you in your temple, right here, right now. Remind us that you have already fought the battle, that you have already won the victory. Help us to live in light of those realities. Oh, Lord, forgive our sins. Give us new life, a joy and peace and purpose that surpass all understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.